All right, everybody. Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here, and I have a interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Catherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash dark topic and watch Catherine's video right now again that's b-a-d-l-a-n-d-s-f-o-o-d.com slash dark topic to check it out badlandsfood.com hello i just want to take a quick moment to tell you about an incredible podcast that i think you'll enjoy swindled swindled's host known only as quote a concerned citizen utilizes narrative storytelling, archival audio, and immersive soundscapes to tell true stories of white-collar criminals, con artists, and corporate evil. This guy's deadpan delivery is perfect for what he's trying to accomplish. When I'm done listening to an app, I feel as if my phone is about to self-destruct after having received such an important, at times, almost dangerous-feeling message. The best part about Swindled is that the writing always surprises. You'll find yourself laughing out loud unexpectedly one minute, then huddled listening close the next to what feels like a secret transmission being delivered to the people of a dystopian society, uh, which it kind of is. If you haven't yet discovered Swindled, well then, you're welcome. Subscribe to Swindled wherever you listen to podcasts. And that's it. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello, out there. You hear the empty platitudes constantly. The things we say when a situation appears to be out of our hands. What goes around comes around. Everything happens for a reason. Karma. That big old bitch who apparently waddles around smacking jackoffs in the back of the head when they least expect it. But betrayal is in the eye of the beholder. Every asshole I know is constantly whining about betrayal. Hey asshole, people aren't betraying you. You betray them with shit behavior that forces a discontinuation of the relationship. 
I've watched too many people point themselves into a corner. Point, 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 until finally there's nobody left to blame. And that finger begins to slowly turn in the correct direction. But far too late. What goes around more often than not continues to go around until someone chooses to step up and throw a wrench in the cycle. Karma isn't a force that's simply willing to do dirty work. It's a natural law. Bad things happen to bad people. Is all. And everything happens for a reason? Sure, it happens because something else happened first. But the idea that an all-seeing entity is pulling strings from the shadow realm, letting a child wilt from cancer over there while gifting a lottery win to an upper-middle-class couple that lets their dogs eat at the dinner table over here, is silly. Insulting, really, to your god of choice. When someone says to me that everything happens for a reason, all I hear is that they don't believe in free will. Everything happens for a reason. It's impossible to see the reasoning behind much of what I cover in podcasts or read in the news or have witnessed with my own eyes, and it feels irresponsible to just write it all off as out of our hands. Tell yourself whatever you need to. I'll be over here frowning as I bend the blinds and observe a homeless person push a cart full of toilet paper down the street. Scratch an ass. It's organized chaos. All of it. We're just hunkered down in the storm of existence, distracting ourselves, constructing frameworks then draping them with thin fabric to ease the anxiety, hoping that if we can't see it, then it can't see us. Danger, death, even contentment. Too difficult to row to hoe. You gotta lay low. Let go, let God. Again, as they say. There are many, though, that have no shelter from the start. No belief in thin protections. No need to cower behind words, sayings, prayers, because life to them is purely about survival. About being battered, soaked, starved of the simple comforts that most consider birthrights. Until one day they look around, see everybody hiding and realize that, hey, maybe I'm the storm, and they go rampaging through life until something intervenes or harnesses them, finally seizing the drive, a drive fueled by the idea that it's not their fault, that they were made this way, that they are justified in doling up pain on these happy, shiny people holding hands. Hate consumes them to become the storm. Eventually, but not before they seed in their victims. And when they're gone, we all peek out from our hiding places, taking in the destruction left behind. We clap each other on the backs and act as if we knew it would all work out. Because, well, you know what they say. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 012. What goes around? Peaceful summer night, June 3rd, 1999. 23-year-old Clayton Lockett, his cousin Alfonso, and his best friend Sean are cruising the streets of Perry, Oklahoma on a mission to locate a man that Clayton claims to owe him money. Clayton is the undisputed leader of his pack. He is a fearsome predator with a pedigree devoid of a motherly touch and 
jam-packed with violence, perversion. His father had been a degenerate, but still, better than his drug-addicted mom, who'd used all the way through her pregnancy, then abandoned Clayton as soon as she recovered enough to walk away. Clayton had been forced to steal as a youth, celebrated when he came home with the goods, punished when he failed and returned with a cop attached to his arm. He'd been molested when he didn't know any better and gang raped when he did as a youngster in juvie. His path had been so rough and tangled, full of snares, traps, and pits that not one indication of kindness, not one small glimmer of innocence can be detected in his eyes, face, mannerisms. His demeanor is that of a death row inmate, not a lot you could do to harm or help a soul peering out through shark-eyed windows onto a world that has taught to take or be taken. The trio has honed in on their target and now slowly circle the residence of Bobby Bourne, a man that Clayton covered a tattoo for recently and has yet to be fully compensated. Clayton has a feeling that Bobby is holding out on him and hopes to come away from this night with what he's owed. And then some. The crew believe their prey to be in his garage as the light is on. That won't do. Too high a risk of a neighbor being alerted if Bobby were to begin screaming out to the street. So they continue to circle the block. Finally, at 10.30 p.m., the crew rolls by to find the garage light extinguished, the house itself seeming to have dozed off since the last pass. The vehicle slows and rolls to a halt. Moments later, its doors silently, expertly, click open, and three shadows begin their slow evolution along the exterior of a home soon to be overtaken by their masters. 23-year-old Bobby Bornt is asleep on the couch, face bathed in bluish light from the television. His nine-month-old son Sam is tucked in and softly snoring in a back bedroom. Bobby is bushed and likely out the moment it's allowed. He believes the day to be done. We often think we can see our future in the careful planning of our past, that once we have chosen our path, we only need to follow it in order to be safe, secure, content. But of course, we can't control the trails being blazed about us, the ones that insist on intersecting with our own. Bobby sleeps the thin sleep of a parent, or a prisoner, or anyone on guard and forced to rest in the shallows of their mind. How could he know that he was about to host an impromptu get-together with the arrival of two unexpected groups of callers and endure the longest night of his life? The first guests arrive rudely, announced by the front door exploding inward. Bobby's head is off the pillow and tilted to the sound of heavy footsteps. His eyes blink and next his mind does the same as it recognizes the man who enters his living room as being real, then familiar, unlike the two strangers behind him. His stomach sinks as his heartbeat rises when he recognizes Clayton Lockett. Lockett had covered a tattoo for Bobby a couple of weeks previous. An agreement surely had been made regarding payment, but it appears as though Bobby had failed to read the fine print that repeated the word psychopath. As Bobby gets up on an elbow and tries to make sense of what's happening, the intruders swarm and begin beating on him. Lockett approaches with the shotgun and bludgeons Bobby Bornt with its butt end. Bornt, dazed and 
bleeding profusely, has been whipped into shape. He does as instructed. He allows his hands to be bound behind his back with duct tape, then his legs, before resisting a gag being shoved in his swollen mouth. The men then go about the business of ransacking the house, searching for anything of value. Clayton Lockett would later claim that Sam, Bobby's nine-month-old, began crying at this point. So he picked the small child up and fixed him a warm bottle. Clayton likely exaggerates his intentions here to soften the hard details of his later confession. Maybe a more accurate depiction of Lockett's attitude in the house is the fact that he reef-born off the couch as his son wailed in the next room and ordered the beaten hogtied man to... Uh, whoa. Stop bleeding on my fucking couch. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix, nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. 
Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix. Nicotine toothpicks. He ripped her face off. The woman on the phone screams. This is how it begins. Abrupt, disturbing, impossible not to want more information. This is 911 Calls Podcast with The Operator, a new offering from 1159 Media that presents then dissects gripping audio from 911 calls made across the world. Join The Operator and his trusty assistant, Mr. Luna, as they navigate the rough road that dispatchers and those on the other end of the line must travel amidst crisis. Experience the panic as moments tick by on each call. Find yourself exasperated as the height of emergency breeds the height of confusion between caller and rescuers. Then, more often than not, witness the heroics of those forced into an emergency situation. Every episode is a roller coaster of emotions, provoked in large part by frank commentary throughout. Don't miss this very important call. Subscribe now to 911 Calls Podcast with the Operator, wherever you listen to podcasts. As the intruders go about their home invasion, 18-year-old Summer Hare and her friend, 19-year-old Stephanie Neiman, arrive unexpectedly and park out front of Bobby Bourne's house. Summer had convinced Stephanie to swing by Bobby's to invite him to a party. Stephanie, not thrilled and maybe already feeling used for her vehicle, waits in her idling truck while Summer approaches the dark house. When a knock comes at the front door, the men inside freeze. Clayton Lockett creeps through the shadows of the home to investigate, shotgun leading the way, and attempts to take a covert peek out through the curtain. But the window had been broken when they busted in, and he finds himself face to face with Summer, who is studying the jagged glass. The door swings open and Summer is yanked inside, where, as she begins to scream, the punches rain down her face to quell the alert. Once Summer is subdued, then gagged, Lockett demands to know if she is alone. Summer reluctantly shakes her head, no, and has the duct tape ripped from her mouth. Lockett is in her face, instructing her how to go about calling her friend inside. He warns that if she runs, he will follow her out and shoot them both dead. When he feels certain that she believes him, he yanks her to her feet and opens the door. Clayton Lockett watches intently from the broken window, sawed off shotgun at the ready as the girl slowly makes her way out to the driveway and calmly calls out for her friend to join the fun. Stephanie Neiman had recently graduated from high school where she'd been a proud member of the school band. Her thoughts as she waited in her coveted Chevy truck with the Tasmanian Devil sticker may have been on her future. A future where she hoped to attend college and become a law enforcement officer. She loved children and was described by all who knew her as a sweet and caring person. Her parents had instilled a stubborn side in her as well that would not be bullied or taken advantage of. She would probably make for an ideal enforcement officer in some capacity. Unfortunately, all of her dreams were about to be taken from her in the spreading nightmare momentarily escaping Bobby Bourne's door in the form of her friend. As instructed, Summer makes her way out to the driveway, makes eye contact with Stephanie, and calls out, claiming that Bobby had invited them in for a drink. Stephanie, maybe reluctantly, exits her truck and follows Summer to the house, locking her beloved vehicle behind her. 
When they reach the house, the two are pulled inside by the adrenaline-soaked men and quickly subdued. Stephanie is beaten and taped up. Summer is taken to the back room and raped in every conceivable way by the group of thieves. Clayton Lockett demands that Stephanie give up her keys so that her vehicle can be moved. He's worried about drawing attention on the street. Stephanie refuses to give up the keys and Lockett responds by smashing her with the butt end of the gun. Stephanie relents and Lockett sends Sean Mathis to move the truck. Mathis soon returns complaining that the alarm is sounding and that he can't shut it off or unlock the vehicle. Lockett is furious already with Stephanie as she has been difficult from the get-go, resisting, complaining, her bravery coming off as a lack of respect for the threat the men pose. Lockett demands that she tell Mathis how to work the keys. Stephanie again refuses. Lockett looks to his cousin, who now holds a shotgun, and says, quote, Hit her with the fucking gun again, she'll tell you. Stephanie quickly tells Mathis to hold two buttons at once to unlock the truck. Sean Mathis leaves to do so and soon returns to inform Lockett that the alarm is now off, but he can't start the vehicle. Lockett's evil eyes look to Stephanie and ask if, quote, You got a fucking kill switch on or something. Stephanie again refuses to tell Lockett anything. At this point, Summer and Bobby start begging Stephanie to stop being so difficult so they can possibly escape the situation. Stephanie finally relents and tells Mathis which button to press, and the now thoroughly pissed off Clayton Lockett watches from the busted window as his boy successfully pulls the Chevy into the driveway alongside Bobby Bourne's own pickup truck. I gotta be honest, I myself am getting a little frustrated with Stephanie here, considering what's about to happen to her, that's a terrible thing to admit, but man, there's a nine-month-old likely wailing throughout this. Your best friend's getting gang-raped. The homeowner's hogtie beaten and begging you to comply. Let go of the fucking truck, for the love of God. Not to be confused with let go and let God, that would be against my twisted theme here, but please, give the bad man what he wants when he's got you at his mercy. The only hope you have is to win him over and make him relax. The only control you have is to shape his impression of you. The only way out is to increase the odds of release or escape. And neither of those possible exits open when you're more concerned about what's being taken from you than for what you still have. Hashtag victim shaming, or victim blaming, whatever the fuck they call it. Lockett begins spitballing with his crew about what they should do next, all the while exchanging the sawed-off and the baby with his cousin, taking turns holding the group down with the gun and keeping the child calm with the bottle. Lockett knows that Bobby's mother lives in close proximity and is worried about the baby's cries alerting her. He suggests they drive the beaten trio out into the country and drop them off somewhere so they can get away without the alarm immediately sounding. Lockett's crew votes against sparing anyone. They like to sound a no alarm better. Clayton agrees, maybe proud of his chosen accomplices, and instructs them to load up the pickup trucks with a mix of themselves and their prisoners, then convoy out to the country to be rid of them. They decide then and there that the baby will be spared. They'll return after the triple homicide and drop the baby off on Bobby's mother's porch. Lockett demands Bobby tell him where there's a shovel, and Bobby tearfully shares that there's one in the garage. They retrieve the tool, and its presence makes the girls near faint. Then Lockett orders his crew to take them to Stephanie's Chevy, while he helps Bobby get the tape off of his legs. Bobby cannot walk due to the circulation having been cut off, so Lockett rubs the feeling back into them. Once Bobby can walk, 
Lockett escorts him to his truck, collecting a diaper bag for the baby and refilling the bottle before he carries the baby out as well. Baby nine months old, you know, but small child. Nine-month-old babies aren't that little. That's just what I'm trying to throw in here. Once in Bobby's pickup, Lockett sees that Bobby's face is turning red. Lockett strips the tape off the man's mouth and Bobby explains he has asthma. He tells Lockett where his inhaler is and Clayton Lockett goes to get it, showing yet another small amount of mercy. Lockett may not be an angel, far from it, but his consideration for the father and son throughout this terror can't entirely be ignored. They drive off and Bobby begins pleading his case to be kept alive, stating that he needs to be able to raise little Sam. He requests Lockett untie his hands so that he can at least hold his child. Lockett reluctantly allows for this mercy as well. As they pull out of the drive and head away from the house, Lockett decides that he'll spare the man. Clayton Lockett is cold. Cold, 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 cold. Don't get me wrong, cold but he's apparently not frozen. The small convoy heads out to the country. The two trucks navigate through some country and along a dirt road, then come to a halt at a secluded spot. Lockett's cousin Alfonso gets out of Stephanie's truck and approaches Lockett. He notices that Bobby's hands are untied and asks, Why? Lockett informs him that Bobby's not going to die. He believes that he won't say anything. Mathis approaches, leaving the two girls gagged and bound in Stephanie's truck. The crew has a conversation as to what they should do. Lockett is firm on leaving Bobby and his boy Sam alive. Alfonso and Mathis suggest that they spare Summer, as they've learned she is a new mother. And besides that, she has complied with everything they've put her through. Like Bobby, she has promised not to say a word. Clayton appraises his crew. He has chosen wisely. They are all on the same page. The bigger girl is still a problem, however. Stephanie, he has learned her name to be. Clayton asks how Stephanie is taking this whole thing and learns that the girl is vehement in her promise to go to tell the police about the whole thing as soon as she's free. Lockett sighs. He needs to think this through. The animal in Clayton Lockett returns and he comes to his decision while raping Summer one more time before passing her over to his crew to have their way again as well. Lockett strides over to Stephanie while his gang assaults her friend openly. He tells her that he's going to let her friends go because he believes they'll stay silent. He asks Stephanie if she'll do the same. Stephanie tells him that she will not. She's going to the police. As soon as this is over, Lockett returns to his crew. He tells his cousin to get the shovel and start digging a hole on the other side of a nearby wire fence. Alfonso does as he's told. Lockett allows Summer and Bobby to walk up and down the deserted, desolate dirt road with the baby as Alfonso completes his task. Stephanie is taken from the truck and helped over the fence. She stands for close to 20 minutes by what's to be her grave, weeping softly. Once the hole is deemed big enough, Stephanie is brought to the edge and Lockett reaches over the fence and shoots the girl. Stephanie drops, but is still alive and can be heard by all to be crying and pleading for her life. The gun is jammed. 
Lockett returns to the truck and manages to clear it. All the while, Stephanie can be heard whimpering. Lockett returns to the grave and shoots Stephanie again. He believes her now to be dead. Lockett orders his crew to bury her, and they head to the task. As they begin, they notice that she's still breathing and trying to speak. Lockett orders his men to bury her alive. They do so. And Lockett, in his later confession, admits that he witnessed dirt puffing out of her mouth as they covered her. As promised, Clayton Lockett and his crew returned Bobby, Baby Sam, and Summer unharmed, but with the threat of sure death should they speak of the incident. Despite their promise to stay quiet, both victims go to the police the very next day. Clayton Lockett is eventually found guilty of conspiracy, first-degree burglary, three counts of assault with a dangerous weapon, three counts of forcible oral sodomy, four counts of first-degree rape, four counts of kidnapping, and two counts of robbery by force of fear. Considering Clayton Lockett had already served time for two previous felonies, he was in deep shit, and we haven't even mentioned the first-degree murder charge. Lockett was sentenced to death for first-degree murder and given more than 2,285 years in prison. His crew members each received life sentences for their part in the crime, after turning witness on him. During Lockett's stay on death row, he wasn't exactly a model prisoner. He was one of those feces and piss throwers. He openly plotted to kill the four witnesses from his trial, two of them being members of his crew. Clayton went so far as to send letters to his aunt, telling her that he had men in prison looking to take care of her son, his cousin Alonzo, for snitching at trial. Lockett managed on at least two occasions to get weapons into his cell. When a shank was discovered, Lockett told the guard, quote, You know that I could have stuck that in your fucking heart. Lockett was so notorious that other prisoners refused to be put in the same cell as him, taking punishment rather than spend a night with a now frozen killer. Fifteen years into his sentence, it was finally time for Clayton Lockett to pay for what he'd done. A statement from the Attorney General at this time read, quote, When Clayton Lockett made his choice to raise a shotgun and shoot 19-year-old Stephanie Neiman twice, he showed her no mercy. When he ordered his accomplice to bury her alive, he showed her no mercy. She begged him to spare her innocent life, and he showed her no mercy. For his actions, he was sentenced to death by a jury of his peers and now must face his punishment. On April 29th, 2014, at around 5 a.m., the morning of his execution, Clayton Lockett refuses to leave his cell and be examined. Guards have to taser Lockett to get him out, and once they examine him, find he has been working on slicing open his wrist. Lockett spends the next 12 hours of his last day alive on suicide watch, looked over by guards, refusing food and visits from attorneys and clergy. Lockett skipped a final meal once he was told that his request for steak would be granted, but not of the quality that he desired. Lockett states at one point that he isn't so much afraid of dying as he is fearful of the method that's going to be used. He doesn't trust the procedure of lethal injection and has heard rumor as to how the drugs might keep a man paralyzed but not necessarily free from pain. At around 5.30 p.m., Lockett is escorted into the execution room where he's laid on a table and restrained. A phlebotomist spends the next 50 minutes trying to find a suitable injection site 
Apparently, Lockett wasn't very veiny, as all typical sights like the arms, legs, feet, and neck are abandoned after much poking. Finally, a suitable vein is found in the groin area, but not before the specialist apparently nicks Lockett's artery and blood begins spurting all over the place. A sheet is placed over him, leaving only his head revealed before the drapes are drawn to allow the witness and victim family room to observe. Lockett is asked if he has any final words, and he responds with a firm, No. An official announces, Let the execution begin. The first drug, midazolam, is injected. It is meant to sedate Lockett. Lockett stares at the ceiling, blinking, and occasionally pursing his lips. Lockett's eyes begin to close, and a few minutes later, the doctor checks on him. After a moment, the doctor announces, Mr. Lockett is not unconscious. There are accounts from this time stating that Lockett was mumbling and trying to move, and he himself manages to state that he is not yet out. After a few minutes, the doctor checks on Lockett again, as he's been still for a while. The doctor declares, Mr. Lockett is now unconscious. The drug to numb and then stop Lockett's heart is administered, but apparently the injection causes Lockett's vein to explode, leaking the cocktail every which way into his body. Lockett kicks his right leg, and his head rolls to the side. He mumbles something that's incoherent. His body begins writhing and bucking. The medication is working, just not at the speed intended. Lockett tries to get up, but is tied down. He lets out a moan, and clearly growls out the word, as he arches up against the restraints. The doctor walks up to prison authorities and says something. The viewing window is again covered as Lockett rise in pain on the table. Reporters are told that the execution has been stopped due to a vein failure. It is not clear whether or not Lockett is now being revived or left to die an agonizing death. Witnesses are asked to leave. At 7.06 p.m., nearly two hours after the usually speedy procedure has begun, 38-year-old Clayton Lockett is pronounced dead of a heart attack. And despite the fact that the next man scheduled to die... Charles Warner, a child killer, a man who raped and murdered an 11-month-old, has his execution reprieved as a result. There are many who stand outside of the prison, smoking and nodding their heads as the old piece of wisdom floats away in the wind. That of what goes around. We had an independent sponsor for this episode. Longtime listener Fred Diedrich and his wife Chanel reached out with their amazing Murder Coffee Company. Sent me a bunch of cool stuff that I've been enjoying very much. Search MurderCoffeeCo.com and get 10% off using promo code LUNA. Fred and his wife are great people making a high quality product. Links in the description for this episode. They're not messing around. Check out what they're up to. It's a lot of fun. High quality stuff too and reasonable prices. Links in the description for coffee. Clayton Lockett. His last meal I learned too late to make the script. The rewritten script. This was actually episode three of the original Dark Topic that has since been largely wiped away. Uh, Some of it's on Patreon. His last meal request was for a Chateaubriand steak which is made from like the best of cuts. Paying the ass to prep right. Almost hilarious how fancy and specific this request is. 
it uh, cost much more than the $15 budget of the prison for a last meal. So Clayton was offered a steak from the local Western Sizzlin, but refused it. Also, the man who was to be executed after Lockett there, Charles Warner, he was executed a year later, and they botched his execution too. They used the wrong potassium something. They put bananas in his uh, syringe. So don't get executed in Oklahoma. That's karma right there, though. eh? I'll be back next week with another one. Please rate and review. It really helps with this reboot's visibility. Check out the Trial by Error Variety Show podcast for my recent appearance where I answer a lot of questions people have had about this reboot. Um, I'm just trying to write. Staying away from that soul-sucking social media. Trial by Error Variety Show, episode 70. It's a great podcast with a great host, Chaz Chaznik. I think you'll enjoy. Trial by Error Variety Show, episode 70. Or any other episode, but I'm on 70. Until next time, keep those eyes kicked, those doors locked, yeah, and stay paranoid. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I'll see you soon. I'll talk to you soon. We'll see you. I hope not, at least. Thank you. He notices that Bobby's hands are untied and asks, why? Uh-oh. Lockett informs him that Bobby's not going to die. 